Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. I hope you had a safe and healthy holiday break because there ain't nothing safe about what's going on right now. You may have heard this weekend the name Neera Tandon. She was trending on Twitter. People were given their hot takes, including myself. Neera Tandon reveals the dark soul of this Biden administration to be. Biden says he will nominate Neera Tandon to the head of the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB. There are very few jobs in Washington more powerful than the head of OMB. So this matters a lot. On the left, we all know Neera Tandon. We may have, whether a big name or just a Twitter account, you may have interacted with her personally, one of the lucky ones who has. She has made many people miserable. She has spent the last five years smearing and trying to take out every single one of Bernie's key operatives and surrogates. And of course, Bernie himself and his wife, his uh, chairs of his campaigns, his appointees to different commissions, and of course, just people who support Bernie Sanders. She was doing this with bad faith attacks, very, very ruthless attacks. She is the organization she leads, which gets hundreds of millions of dollars a year, the Center for American Progress cap to facilitate some of these attacks. Her vicious tweets were not only part of it, although she has tweeted 87,500 times in the last 10 years, not counting the thousands of tweets she has deleted in the past few days. Glenn Greenwald points out that after Trump was elected in 2016, Tandon introduced the baseless claims about Russian hackers stealing the election from Hillary Clinton and delivering it to Donald Trump. Of course, she also blamed us. She blamed millennials. She blamed Bernie supporters. They blamed everybody but themselves because last I heard, she was supposed to be chief of staff to Hillary Clinton, and she sure seemed very mad. This is exactly the kind of paranoid crap that Donald Trump is peddling right now at the expense of our system and government. Neera Tandon doesn't care. She's about winning at any cost, in many ways like her patron, Hillary Clinton. Neera Tandon, though, is not just hated on the left, and now we know on the right. The establishment has her their mixed views on her, too, mainly because of her tactics and her public and private temperament. They think she's gone too far, and she gets rewarded for it, like she is right now. So she lied about the Unity Reform Commission that I served on. This was a commission uh, that was set up after the 2016 election, and it was a commission that was led, led by Hillary Clinton appointees. There were three Tom Perez, chair of the Democratic Party. He had three people on the committee, and the rest in the minority were the Bernie Sanders appointees. She organized a massive effort to smear certain members of the commission who were calling for major reform, but were absolutely in the minority. She made it sound like these three members were taking over the Democratic Party with some sort of weird agenda that had nothing to do with what we were actually presenting at the time. But nobody was watching the videos, so there was no way to really prove it, right? It's all on the record. She would say things like, we had this goal to get rid of primaries and replace them with, for some weird reason, caucuses, something that you can't even do. It comes down to the state that has to decide it. And she said it's because we wanted to disempower people of color. It was their usual smear efforts. She got articles published in certain papers and media outlets. They had segments on MSNBC about this. They named our names. And as a result, we received death threats, hundreds of attack and smear tweets an hour, some fake, some ginned up, some incited. Hit pieces, hit pieces using quotes from near allies as their fact checking and validation. She tried to cancel all of us, all because, you ready? It was a distraction away from something that they could not run from. We wanted budget oversight and to ban conflicts of interest at the DNC. This is a very strange appointment from a president-elect who says he is trying to unite us. Given some of her anti-union attitudes and union-busting tactics at CAP, you'd think that the Republicans would welcome her. But no, they have already declared her appointment dead before arrival because of what Senator Cornyn's spokesman called, quote, an endless stream of disparaging comments about the Republican senators whose vote she'll need, end quote. It is a rare day in hell when I find myself sharing a view with John Cornyn, so here we are. So why is Joe Biden sending up this non-starter 
of an appointment? That is the real question. What is this really about? She's not getting approved. Well, to me, it is very clear. This is an attempt to box in Bernie. If he supports Biden's appointee, Neera Tandon, he drives a wedge between himself and his loyal supporters who cannot abide. But we, I mean, there's no way <laughs> that anyone would support that move with Neera Tandon because she made it her goal to knock out every one of us if she could. If he balks at her appointment, he distances himself from Biden, Schumer, and the Democratic structure. Remember one thing. If the Republicans hang on to the Senate after, the, after Georgia votes next week and uh, next month, this near tandem idea will sink beneath the muck of Washington pretty quickly. But if the Democrats pull a double-digit win, guess who's in line to chair the budget committee? Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. He would likely play a key role in confirming or blocking Neera Tandon to be budget director. And he's already hearing from his fellow senators and Congress members who are on the progressive side that they're supporting Neera. Immediately, within 24 hours, uh, Senator Brown and Senator Warren said that they support, uh, they, they admire Neera, as well as Congresswoman Barbara Lee. That is pressuring him from the inside. This is... Uh, this is, this is part of a constant effort, let's just say that, coming from the Democratic establishment complex to divide the left and to send Bernie supporters down blind alleys. I know Neera is a Hillary person, and I don't doubt that Joe Biden feels some need to give some Hillary supporters a spot, but giving her this job is not the way. Using her as a sacrificial lamb to box Bernie in, dividing the left, I don't know. I mean, is that ultimately the strategy? This is, this is the question. The question is, what is this actually about? Well, we're going to discuss it today because we have a great show. Uh, before we get to our panel, is Jelani and Yasmin Taib, who have both personally experienced the wrath of Nira at CAP. Uh, we are going to be talking about a new book that is out called Palestine, A Socialist Introduction with Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean. So stay tuned right after the break. We will be uh, on with them to discuss the book. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm excited to welcome our next guest. They are the co-authors of Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, Sumaya Wad and Brian Bean. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So this, uh, you know, th this is obviously a topic that many in the left feel very strongly about, and I think it does tie into our conversation of the day around Neera Tandon, very much so, uh, which we'll get to later. But um, is it, does it just go without saying that, say, most socialists do carry the same stance on Palestine? Or is this, is this something about much bigger? Like, what was the inspiration behind your book? Whoever wants to chime in, go ahead. Thanks. And, and thanks again for having us here. Um, I think it's true that, that many socialists in the U.S. at least do uh, support Palestinian liberation. I think the definition of what Palestinian liberation means is very different for different people. And I think that's very much a thing in this new socialist left that's emerging in the US. Um, but uh, we're still a long way from getting to the point that, that we need to be at, which is full support for the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, full support for what Palestinians are calling for on the ground, whether that's in Gaza, Palestinian citizens of Israel, Palestinians in the West Bank or in the global diaspora. And that's where this book comes in. Um, so it's a book that's trying to put forward arguments to help people understand the link between the struggle for freedom here in the US to this larger international fight um, for liberation. And I think there's a lot of ways that people can draw from the Palestinian freedom struggle, sort of a roadmap to grasping exactly how the various movements that exist here in the US, right from immigration, gender justice, um, the fight against climate change, how they intersect and interlock to um, imperialism and U.S. imperialism in particular in the Middle East. And I think Palestine is one important focal point of that. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's sort of what the book aims to do. I think to put it very bluntly, it's trying to get um, Palestinians to, uh, to be a part of this emerging socialist uh, left in the U.S. and then bringing uh, socialism to, to Palestinian liberation. When you say bringing, Palest uh, bringing Palestinians part of this socialist movement, you mean uh, the diaspora in the U.S., the Palestinians who are located in the United States, or do you mean 
abroad as well or anywhere, frankly. Brian, do you want to take that? Oh, why don't you take this one? Cool. Um, I mean, definitely in the U.S., our main audience is a U.S. audience, right? We're trying to educate people and raise awareness here about how these struggles connect. And so I think there's there's a lot to say for the Palestinian diaspora and the movement that's growing here in the U.S. that's existed for long, but that's now really radicalizing around other uh, struggles from the struggle against racism to uh, anti-imperialist feminism, et cetera. So I think it's bringing that particular audience um, and drawing on the, the very uh, long and, and, and rich history of uh, socialism in the Middle East and in Palestine um, and various uh, left uh, and communist parties um, in Palestine in particular. So bringing up that tradition, connecting it to what we're seeing today. Go ahead, Ryan. If I could add something to that, I think that in addition to that, you know, there is um, the notion that socialists are all about fighting imperialism. Like that's something that you often hear. Like it's like, that's what socialists do. They build movements against imperialism and whatnot. So I think when we're talking about sort of connecting struggles, I think that one of the things we wanna bring into the discussion about building a socialist movement against imperialism is that Palestine is central in that. I mean, Palestine is central because the Israeli state is a central feature in US imperialism and world domination. And so if we're gonna build a movement to combat US imperialism, uh, fighting for the liberation of Palestine has to figure in that centrally. And so I think, so that's part of the argument they're making as well too. If you, you know, are your socialist and you wanna combat imperialism, you gotta take on Palestine, you gotta take on Israel. Similarly, if you're fighting for the liberation of Palestine, you're gonna come up against the question of US imperialism. So what I find really interesting about this is, um, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, um, the Democrats uh, cozied up to Netanyahu, obviously, and they still do, by the way. It's just he's now a little bit more toxic of a figure because of his relationship with Trump. Because of his relationship with Trump and just how, especially in the last week, the turn of events that have happened, um, you know, in in response to Iran, et cetera, why... (laughs) Do you think that this movement is 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 becoming a little bit more mainstream? Like, do you do you find that there are more, uh, for lack of a better word, like normie Dems who have a little bit more sensitivity and understanding um, of the complexities in the Middle East? I mean, it, it, are they warming up to to this, for lack of a better term, like the socialist argument uh, for the liberation of Palestine? Do you find that like there's a crossover appeal because Netanyahu's just so outrageous? I think there's two features of this. I think like how just bad and egregious Netanyahu has been, has been something that has, I think, um, been part of a sea change in American politics in which the question of Israel and Palestine used to be basically a third rail, you know, like it's something that you sort of couldn't touch. And now it's something that is openly debated in Congress and is seen more and more and more as kind of an issue of progressives. So not even sort of beyond sort of the socialist milieu, but sort of considered progressives. And so I think that you know Netanyahu's actions, him being associated with Trump, his flirtations with various sort of far right forces have, have been a part of that. But I think the other part of that is the BDS movement. And so I think that sort of even before that, there was a lot of organizing on the ground, um, mostly in college campuses in the United States, but sort of tirelessly sort of fighting to kind of delegitimize the notion of of Israel as somehow the the greatest democracy in the Middle East or some nonsense like that. And so I think that that, that Netanyahu's um, egregiousness and sort of um, uh, escalating the aggression is part of it. I think that the BDS movement that existed before that and is still ongoing is also essential for that sea change in politics that I think you talked about. How much has the BDS movement shifted? Uh, I mean, do are there like elected officials who are, are running as progressives in terms of supporting the BDS that's because I, I bring this up because, you know, in the, in the 90s, or maybe it was even in the 80s, in the Democratic Party, for instance, this idea was recognizing Palestine, <laughs> just, just the simple recognition was the most controversial take that the DNC as an institution uh, had. And, and it ostracized people like uh, Dr. Zogby, who was the person who introduced that and ran under the Jesse Jackson Rainbow Coalition, um, and, and as well as BDS. And... Uh, like you said, a third, it became a third rail in the, the party itself so that other lawmakers didn't want to be associated with that because they didn't want to feel the same ostracizing um, that, that that was happening. Uh, how How is it, do we see, I mean, I, I know these are often, this question is brought up on questionnaires, especially if people are looking for DSA support, but other 
other organizations too. Do we find that there's a, a movement from candidates and elected officials too? Whoever wants to respond. Definitely. Um, there's, there's definitely a shift. Um, I mean, you're seeing today people running and, uh, and like openly supporting the right to boycott. Um, you had Cori Bush do that yeah. in, yeah. in Missouri. And this was days before her primary, right? So like this was prime time to completely avoid the question of Palestine and certainly BDS. And instead she chose to, to uh, respond to it. Uh, you have elected officials like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib uh, who openly support the right to boycott. Um, and then on local levels, someone like Zuhran Mamdani, who just ran in, in Queens and won um, for assemblyman. And he openly supports the boycott of and, and sanctions movement, not just the right to boycott, but the movement itself as a tactic uh, for liberation. And I think I think that's enormous and that's tremendous. And I think one of the one of the ways we can show that there's this shift and that uh, there's real progress on this front is um, all the laws that are coming out to boycott and to attempt to criminalize and punish those who advocate for Palestinian liberation and specifically those who use the the BDS um, tactics. And and really quickly, just to you know piggyback on something Brian said earlier about Netanyahu, your question about Netanyahu, I think that's entirely true um, that he's helped sort of push this progressive front because of his alliance with Trump. But I also think what we're seeing is that there are people, both elected officials and then on the ground, uh, who recognize that it's not just Netanyahu didn't start right this this uh, this right wing movement in Israel, but it's actually the the very nature of, of Israel is inseparable from that of imperialism, settler colonialism, and so its existence as it currently stands needs to change. Right, it's an ethno state. It's inherently incompatible with justice, and that's what we're fighting against. Um, and that's part of what the book is trying to put forward: that it's not just about Netanyahu, it's not just about Trump, it's not just about these last ten years. It's actually a much longer history, and, and there's a much longer fight ahead of us. Can Can we talk about some of the solidarity? I mean, when when you say solidarity uh, with Palestine as as a as a, a colonized state at this point, probably I don't know. Is that fair enough to say? Um, what I, I, you said something about environment, and I that really stuck to me because there is this intersectional um, aspect that's not like discussed. You know, first off, it's just never discussed in the mainstream, but but never from like an intersectional approach. And I remember I was talking to Linda Sarsour at one point about um, water, and I was really blown away by. <laughs> the lack of clean water and kind of the games that are being played by uh, Israel and controlling the water supply with the people of Palestine. Can we just like touch on that and some of the environmental aspects? Because th that was really eye-opening to me. Whoever, uh, Brian, you just went off mute first. I'll say you first. <laughs> <laughs> good, good eye. It's like Jeopardy. Go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what is water for 500 and Miki? Um, yeah, I think that this issue, aside from just being an environmental question, so the, the access to water and how that has been diminished, particularly in the West Bank and, of course, in, in Gaza, um, and the way in which the pattern of settlements is uh, pushed into places that makes it even uh, harder to access the water. And, you know, that's an environmental question. I think the other thing, you started talking about solidarity, and so there's this there's a solidarity question about environmental justice. I think there's also many parallels around the question of racism. So, you know, there's also Flint, Michigan, where they still don't have water and it's next to a lake and it's poisoned. And so these patterns of connections and solidarity with environmental justice, but also questions of racism, I think are different threads that we need to sort of pull on to indicate how our struggles are indeed connected and by fighting together is how we can uh, transform them. Samaya, Tiffany thoughts to piggyback. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you really can't talk about climate change without talking about imperialism. Um, they just come hand in hand. And I think there are so many examples from around the globe um, that, that attest to that. Um, in Palestine in particular, there are so many ways that Israel's apartheid regime really, uh, 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 sorry, uh, there's so many ways that Israel's apartheid regime just passes all these laws and policies uh, that completely destroy the Palestinian, um, Palestinian land, um, uh, among many other things. And I think with water in particular, the figures are just really, really staggering. So in, in the West Bank and occupied West Bank, Palestinians live on an average of about 70 liters of water per capita per day. Um, meanwhile, Israeli settlers in these Jewish-only settlements that Palestinians are completely prohibited, prohibited from entering um, consume up to 300 liters of, 
of, of water per capita per day. So, I mean, the, the difference is just how can you look at that and think this is not apartheid? How can you look at that and think this is not settler colonialism? Um, you know, the, the, the numbers don't lie. They're right there. And this is just one example. I think the same applies with how uh, Israel, you know, goes into Palestinian farms and just raises hundreds of olive trees down. Um, and then points the finger at Palestinians and say, oh, it's your fault. You're not taking care of them or it's weak infrastructure. Um, and, and I think the list goes goes on and on. Uh, let's touch on some of the other uh, things that you bring up in the final minutes uh, about your book. So so um, if we were to pick three issues, just because the book, you can read the book, pick up the book, put it up on screen. Everybody can take a look at it. The three issues that would probably uh, surprise people the most in terms of um, key aspects of international solidarity, you know, whether it's climate or gender justice or, or I mean, what would you say the top line issues? Like if we're going to go to our, our holiday dinners with our families and we want to educate them. These are the three uh, intro points for them. Um, great question. I mean, I think the the most egregious one is just on the the funding. Um, you know, the U.S. state gives 138 billion uh, ish in 2019. Um, you know, money to the Israeli state, which is a settler colonial racist ethno state, and that amount of money is a lot of money that um, could be spent on a lot of things that people sitting around the dinner table at the holidays will want. You know, there's the popularity of Medicare for all. Um, here in Chicago, we're talking about um, mental health care. Like there's all these things that we need. Um, the economy, of course, is still in a recession. Um, and rather than spending it on these things, it's spent on a settler colonial state. I think that- And, and where the, does the money go to? I mean, is it allocated specifically? Um, I mean, a lot of it still goes to, to military spending, um, still does. Um, and so I think that, that that would be sort of the first uh, bit that I would sort of talk about. I mean, 100, you know, the, the, the budget of the state of Illinois is like 46 billion. So I think just making the comparison about how much is, how much is spent um, uh, based on what we spend here is just the most egregious thing. Um, just, I think- what, One quick follow-up to that. Yeah. Comparatively to, to the Obama administration, did that budget get much larger? How, what's your sense? Obama passed that. Yeah. Sorry, it go ahead. Beyond 138 billion per year. So, so the number is 38 billion dollars um, over the over a 10-year period. That's what Obama passed right before he left office. So it's 3.8 billion dollars per year, um, which is a lot of money, um, and you know could fund so many things that we need right now, especially as we we suffer through this uh, second wave of COVID. You know, you have 40. Uh, sorry, I think I, I read this morning in the New York Times, it was like one person is dying of COVID every 40 seconds in the United States right now. And if you think about $3.8 billion, um, that's all specifically military funding for Israel. And they actually have to use a certain percentage of that to buy weapons from the U.S. So this is also fueling the U.S. weapons industry at the same time. And we know what that means. It means our police are getting militarized here. Um, that I mean, that that directly comes back, back here it's to hurt us. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so I, I definitely agree with Brian about that being being the first one. Um, and I would, I'll, I'll give the second, and then and then Brian, you could do the third. Um, I think the second the second one would be um, like settler colonialism and like the fight the indigenous peoples fights here in the U.S. I think that certainly was brought to the to the mainstream during the Standing Rock protests in um, in 2016. Um, so I think that's another big theme, talking about how uh, indigenous struggles are ongoing. This is not something in the past. It's not like a historic thing we can just study in a textbook, but it's actually ongoing right now. And we have a role to play in stopping it. And you really, you can't separate these indigenous struggles from climate change, right? Because they're all about land and the environment. And um, this past year, we, we saw what happened in California with the fires um, and in Washington and, and, and Oregon. So I think connecting it to indigenous struggles and, and, and really understanding how from Turtle Island here in the U.S. to to Palestine, that these are ongoing struggles that 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 we need to be a part of. I'd say that would be number two. Brian, what, what would number three be? I mean, I think that um, here in the United States, the struggle against anti-black racism is very important and is kind of the thing that shakes everything up because of how uh, that is sort of woven into the very fabric of U.S. capitalism. And we saw that really shake the country uh, with the rebellion over the summer that's still sort of ongoing. And so I think sort of the connections between our police forces here and those um, in Israel, how um, you know, entire police stations um, send for training, technology is developed um, uh, and 
uh, sort of trained and practiced on the, the Palestinian people that's been used to bring back here to sort of oppress black people sort of in this country. Um, our own, uh, you know, police superintendent in Chicago, David Brown, is a graduate of sort of one of these sort of programs. And that's the case pretty much in every major um, U.S. police department. And so I think the, the way in which um, Israel settler colonialism that, um, you know, oppresses Palestinians every day is also what is the, the practice for U.S. police departments that then come back here and use to oppress and kill um, Black folks in this country. I, I want to follow up with one question, just because it is we, we start off the show and we're going to end the show with it as well, um, about organizations, institutions like Center for American Progress. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure if you guys have a take on this, but they have cozied up. They're supposed to be this progressive uh, organization that gets hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, much of it is foreign, governments like UAE, uh, but also they cozy up and have invited Netanyahu to speak at their conferences. Um, and I think like, I mean, the, the, all of everything that you've laid out just seems like a logical argument probably to most Democrats, but it has been, the conversation has been stifled so much by Democratic, with the low, low Democratic Party institutions. Um, that it's really made it so hard to kind of penetrate uh, into the mainstream. And, and I mean, we start off by saying Trump created this opening, but uh, what, what, what does it mean to you that Neera Tandon or the Center for American Progress or whoever it is, these democratic institutions has completely kind of taken over the space um, in terms of, of having these conversations and, and pushing them out? Um, I, I mean, I don't think it's surprising at all, because as soon as you start talking about Palestine um, and, you know, and, and allowing for criticism of Israel to sort of leak in, you automatically have to face things like police brutality, things like the weapons industry, um, things like um, the indigenous struggles that are going on here in the U.S., right? The U.S. being a settler colony. And so you open this door to all of these things that uh, threaten the U.S. as it stands right now. And it's undemocratic, top-down, um, heavily militarized or increasingly militarized uh, state, um, not to mention the surveillance. And so I think it's, it's very strategic on the part of these establishment figures and organizations and parties to ensure that, um, that the Palestine movement doesn't get, doesn't get a say and doesn't grow and strengthen itself. Because as soon as it does, it allows all of these other movements to, uh, to do so as well. And it threatens uh, you know, US imperialism and US domination globally. And, and as a result, you know, the capitalist system as it stands right now. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's gonna take a lot for us to get past that because for them, it means losing everything. Um, and for us, it means liberation. And so I think it's gonna be this tug of war for a long time. And right now we're, we're getting a little in and I think we, we really need to hold on to that and, and keep pushing. It's a fascinating way of saying it. This, it. As soon as that unravels, all the other uh, issues unravel as well. Brian, what's your take? Um, I mean, I agree with what Sumeya is saying. And I think it's also important to take a step um, even sort of beyond that, because, you know, the liberal think tanks and whatnot are, are going to do the game plan that Samaya laid out. And I think that, you know, that stretches very far into the Democratic Party and it reaches to the current president-elect Joe Biden. You know, he is someone who has said, you know, I'm a Zionist. In 1986, he said, if there wasn't an Israel, um, I would have to make one that is the most important, um, you know, thing in the Middle East for the U.S. Um, and so he has been fairly um, consistent. Um, under Obama, you know, they uh, continued to, to um, give weapons to Israel as they were sort of slaughtering um, Palestinians. And, uh, you know, 2014, 11 children were dying a day in the, the bombardment of Gaza, and they kept giving them munitions. Obama gave, you know, some like soft criticism, even though the money kept flowing. He was the good cop. Biden was the bad cop. He was the person who had the relationships. And so I think that the, the, the liberal think tanks are going to do their thing. But I think that the U.S. state, I think uh, Trump has taken it somewhere. I don't, expect, I don't expect Biden to really push very far to undo those things. He, he wants the normalization with the Arab states. Um, maybe he'll do some small uh, symbolic things like restoring the, the PA offices in D.C. or sort of whatnot. So I think that there's a long road ahead. I think that the ideas have been changed by the stuff that we started the conversation with. But I think that going up against that will be going against not just, you know, propaganda engines like the Center for, you know, for Progress, but also the, the, the chief executive of the U.S. state. 
Amazing. Um, it just it, It's an amazing time to have these conversations as we enter this new administration. And I mean, especially since this has been such a centerpiece of the Democratic Party's infrastructure. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I urge everybody to go check out uh, your new book. It comes out. Is it out officially yet or is it December? Uh, like in a week today. It's out. It came out oh, it's today. out today. I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> like December. It is December. <laughs> Palestine, a socialist introduction. Uh, it is edited by Sumeya uh, Awad and Brian Bean. Thank you guys so much for for joining today and um for writing this book go pick up the book haymarket books directly at the publisher red amazon any place that's not amazon or some corporate out you know structure uh would be the right place to go get it and um read it write notes and share as much as you can and your with your families during holiday events or whoever you know it's a great time <laughs> great time to do so thanks for having us thanks for having us thank you guys Bye. All right, everyone, we will be a right back to discuss everyone's favorite topic, Neera Tandon and Center for American Progress. Uh, we will have Zed Jelanian, a former employee of Center for American Progress, and Yasmin Daib, also a former employee of Center for American Progress. Uh, we'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, make sure it's that time of the show where you have to smash that like button, click subscribe if you haven't already. We've got an amazing week. Uh, we're doing a lot of, of special interviews uh, beyond the show. If you click that little like bell, then you know when we go live at night or at other times of the day when there's like breaking news, that's how you know. And if you're not already, join us on Patreon. Guys, holiday presents, family, friends, you want to indoctrinate them? Bring them here. I can speak normie and then kind of ease them into becoming radicals. Uh, this is where they go. Indoctrinate your family by sending them a $5 a month Patreon subscription. Patreon.com slash The Nomi Key Show. It is also how we pay our bills. Support independent media. This is giving Tuesday, Monday. I don't know whatever it's another like foundation gimmick but hey let's buy into it giving tuesday all right uh yes me and talib uh actually had to i feel very bad i i'm i missed this notice uh during the show but she unfortunately had to bow out today but we have zed jelani and he has a lot to say he also knows yasmin um so zed is a writer he's a journalist uh his work has appeared in the intercept common dreams the guardian zed is a former employee of the near Tandon world. Uh, so he has a lot to say, and he said so publicly in the past. Zed, thanks for joining us. Thanks for talking about everybody's favorite topic, near Tandon. <laughs> oh, no problem. <laughs> no problem. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a reoccurring, it's a reoccurring uh, topic, I think. So. Um, all right, let's just start off with this. Usually what happens when someone talks about Nira is you get flooded with tweets and attacks immediately after. Uh, threats, articles pulled, you know, smears about you. I mean, I can't, the, the kinds of smears I had the other day, I was like, I didn't know that about myself either. Thank you so much for informing me about my life. Um, this is kind of like how she operates, but I'm really curious, like that's publicly how she operates. She organizes these, these tribes, these little um, Reddit Twitter farms, for lack of a better word, to kind of back her up and echo uh, whatever she's putting out there. How does she operate internally? Like, yeah, at, at so it, it's, it's interesting in that I think the public persona is not that different from the private persona. Uh, I think she has a certain, uh, you know, I think of her largely as like a permanent campaign operative, right? Like she is a loyalist to a faction of politicians. First, I think it was the Clintons. Now it's, it looks like it's going to be the Bidens. Uh, where she is arranging everything that happens around her uh, to align with the trajectory of the political fortunes of those people. So at the Center for American Progress, that meant uh, often pushing staff that worked around her to be supportive of whatever the Obama administration was doing, whatever the Clintons were doing. Uh, and I think she was often uh, somewhat undiplomatic in the way that she did that. Uh, she didn't tend to have a good relationship, particularly with the younger progressive crowd at Center for American Progress, but also some of her, her coworkers more on her level. And I think that I don't really think of it as an ideological thing. Like, I don't think of her as being ideologically committed to neoliberalism or anything. I think of her as being highly loyal 
to a group of actual politicians and she moves along with them. So for instance, Holly Otterbein at Politico had a really good um, article about some of the progressive critiques of Nira. And they asked um, someone close to Tandon about why she was supportive of looking into social security cuts. And they said basically, well, that was Obama's position at the time. Like as if she doesn't have an independent position, as if her job was largely to just fall in with the administration, even though she was running a think tank, which was supposedly supposed to be independent. And that was a lot of, of, of the issues I think we I had working with her was that she really just didn't respect people who were trying to be creative or trying to be independent, who were trying to actually carve a different way for politics within the Democratic Party or elsewhere, uh, because she sees herself largely as a political operative or a loyalist to one faction. And that often meant being very undiplomatic with people who did not quite agree with that, or people who maybe ran up against some of the people who were funding the think tank, whether it was, uh, you know, Walmart or Michael Bloomberg. I had some experiences like that with her, uh, so, or so, foreign so governments. Let's get to that for a second, because I, I, you know, you wrote uh, for The Intercept, did a lot of investigative reporting specifically around funding, as does um, Li Fang, for instance. Uh, what, where did Center for American Progress come from? Like, when it started, what were, what were its goals? And, and I mean, did it always take UAE money? Like, where, what were yeah. the original goals? And then when and, and who did they start taking money from? Right. I think this is, this is really interesting. So basically, John Podesta and a few other people, he was Bill Clinton's former chief of staff in the White House, uh, founded Center for American Progress to be a think tank and a place for basically Democrats to organize ideas. They didn't, they didn't really have any really good places just for party-oriented type. Uh, it's not officially, by the way, it's not officially aligned with the Democratic Party, but it more or less is. It's kind of de facto aligned with Democratic Party. Um, I would say, for the most part, Podesta, I worked under, I worked mostly under Podesta when he was president of Center for American Progress. I would say he very, very much is in the neoliberal camp with his politics, but he was very open-minded and respectful towards people who disagree with him. Like, he was always happy to banter with other people, to talk to them. Uh, to reflect on ideas that were kind of outside of consensus. Um, and I think that's what made him a good manager. Like he just kind of get along with people. Um, at some point, Tandon left the Obama administration, which she was in. What was she doing the at president. the Obama administration? Uh, she was working on healthcare related policy and domestic policy. Um, I don't know that she had a, this is another thing about her. She's not very policy focused. She's not very knowledgeable on policy. Um, it's a very weird take to put her at OMB for that reason. Uh, I don't think She's ever been deeply involved in it uh, or managing it or its administration or knows that much about economics or so on and so forth. Uh, but anyway, she went to the head of the Center for American Progress. And I think what happened was so but prior to her coming there, CAP had, you know, corporate funders and we would run into problems with them sometimes. But normally it would just end up being us and the fundraising team, which was the development team, kind of arguing it out a little bit and then going our separate ways. Uh, under her, she became much more, I think demanding that we don't do anything that would disrupt funding streams. So one example would be like, you know, I wrote a post about a blog post uh, when I was working there about Michael Bloomberg and how his girlfriend was on the board of Zuccotti Park. Zuccotti Park is where Occupy Wall Street took place. Uh, I said basically it's a conflict of interest. She, she earns a paycheck from there. Uh, she was furious about this. She said, you know, how could you write this? You know, we're pitching him for funding. Don't you know that? That sort of thing. And that kind of thing happened again and again. And I believe you know, Yasmini was going to be on, they even got her to remove a section of her report about how he had used NYPD to spy on Muslim Americans uh, because he was funding the think tank. And they saw that as a, as a, you know, possibly disrupting a relationship with a funder. And I think that's really what motivates Nira Tandon. She's highly transactional and highly factional, much more than she is ideological. I couldn't tell you what she actually believes about Michael Bloomberg because I don't think that's even relevant to how she behaves. I think she sees it as a, oh, putting together a political coalition through fundraising and different factions and loyalties. And that's what's important to her above any other kind of ideological principle. Uh, so on the note, uh, you mentioned the Ducati Park spying in the, in, and specifically around, it was earlier, um, spying on Muslims. There was a big story. I think AP won a Pulitzer, if I recall, for this story. And I, I, I remember at that time, people like Senator Gillibrand and Cory Booker were all defending it. And, and I wonder how much of that is because it's not just that it's this quote unquote think tank that publishes papers um, and raises money. It's that there's also this, 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 it's, it's like the, um, she sends out a bat signal online, obviously, but she also sends out bat signals to key lawmakers about 
what stances they should take. The institution uh, cap sends out bat signals on what stances Democrats should take, how far they can go. It is very, it's actually very important. I think a lot of people who have not been involved in DC politics don't understand this, but the think tanks like Heritage does this largely for the right with a few other think tanks and CAP does this largely for Democrats, uh, is that members of Congress are very unlikely to take positions unless they feel like they have some backing from some institution because they want to know the policies they are promoting have been vetted, they've been, uh, they'll have someone who can explain them coherently and cogently. And so the reason why so many corporations, so many banks, why Walmart and the Waltons, why foreign uh, governments like UAE funded, funded CAP for so many years and that escalated under Neera Tandon was because they understand that then CAP will put out certain products, or at least they will have some input on what products they put out. I wouldn't say they 100% dictated it, but they had a lot of input. Like they would alter policy products based on, on input from donors all the time. Because they have the input on these products, then if you're a member of Congress and you're saying, hmm, how, what should I do about arms sales to Saudi Arabia? Well, CAP is not telling me to cut them off, right? CAP is, is skeptical about that. Well, if CAP isn't, yeah, I don't know if I should. You know, these established people, these party elders are telling me maybe it's not a great idea. Maybe I shouldn't do it. Um, that's why it's worth it for all these people to pay so much money to CAP. And that's why they didn't, they didn't like the younger people who worked there who, you know, we were interested in. Uh, basically progressive advocacy through blogging and, and newsletter and communications. And eventually they eliminated the entire blog from, which is called from Think Progress, which was Think Progress. It was a very popular blog. We were one yeah, of the most popular funny. political blogs on the internet. Eventually they just ended up eliminating it, um, which is funny because I heard that after Trump's election, CAP raised so much money that they didn't know what to do with the money. So they had the money. They could have funded Think progress for years to come. Of course, they had the money. I mean, uh, remember the conference that they put on? So this is let's let, let's talk a little bit about the conference. They did this conference at was it the Four Seasons? Am I correct? Four Seasons in DC? I, I couldn't I couldn't I tell you, but it's a, it's a nice it's a nice conference. Yes. And and like to put that in perspective, you know, the average room is like hundreds of thousands of dollars a night to start in DC. Hotels are always expensive because people are always going there to lobby during the days of the week. So, you know, and there's conferences that are going on. It's always expensive to get a hotel in DC if you're there during the week. Um, so they had this conference and it was like, I can't remember what the entrance, but it was definitely over a thousand dollars to go to the conference. Um, I'll come back and look at that number later and, and, and update you all. But it was ridiculous in this. I remember it was around the time of the People's Summit, which of course wasn't that much money. <laughs> Um, so they have the money. I mean, you know, not only are they getting the money from foreign governments, which is just like an endless supply, um, and from Bloomberg, an endless supply, but like they're charging thousands of dollars to go to this elitist conference so they can, you know, hobnob with Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker. And, you know, it, it's, it's the epitome to me of what is wrong with Washington. But what really concerns me is that there's a fear that if you don't involve yourself, you're going to feel the wrath of the Tandon industrial complex. And, and, so and look, that's, that's ultimately why she's a power player because she's in a position to give access to so many government officials to promote certain policy products that you know they're all going to read. I mean, when we, were, when we put out a policy product, everyone up to David Axelrod in the White House was reading it every day. Like, you know, I think at one point he accidentally replied to one of our newsletters like, and you know, like I was like, oh, David Axel, I was reading this every day, like, you know, very important person next to Barack Obama. Um, because when you have that kind of access, you're a de facto lobbyist. Even if you're not a registered lobbyist, you're a de facto lobbyist. So everyone who's paying you can sort of become your client, right? Like if AT&T or Walmart or Michael Bloomberg or the United Arab Emirates is paying you, they are kind of your client. And this is how... This is a model of politics that I think she grew up under in the 1990s because her entry into Democratic Party politics was working under Bruce Reed, uh, who was the, you know, the, the godfather of domestic neoliberal policy under Bill Clinton. And I think that's just how she learned how it operates. I don't think she's necessarily a bad intentioned or a cruel person or anything that, you know, people talk, spar with her online and they, maybe they get that intention. I just think that she has this older kind of variation of politics that's different than the version of politics of progressives who are coming of age now who view money in politics as a corrupting influence. She views it as a normal thing. Like it's completely normal for your think tank. To See, I'm going to differ with you, Zed. Right? I know that you're trying to play devil's advocate here and you've had your own personal interactions with her, but I do think she's a cruel person. I mean, she specifically made up lies I, about people. Well, and well okay. I, I should say this. I should say this. She does strike me as 
being as having some of the same personality characteristics as Trump in that she is very impulsive at times. And I think she can be thin skinned. And those do sometimes manifest in cruelty, even if I don't think she's intentionally setting out to be that way. Uh, one example is in the New York Times reported this. You don't have to take my word for it. New York Times reported yeah. this. In 2008, I think it was, I believe it was 2008 or 2007, she literally punched Faz Shakir, my former boss, who was Bernie Sanders' cafe manager. She punched him because she asked her then boss, Hillary Clinton, a question about Iraq. A very fair diplomatic question, by the way. He wasn't rude about it, but she just thought that, you know, this was not politically helpful for Clinton. So she punched him. I don't, you know, if you're managing a diverse government office, you're going to have people who are going to disagree with you sometimes. They're going to tell you things you don't want to hear sometimes. You have to have to be able to manage your temper. And that is something she consistently failed at when I worked with her. And I think she's consistently failed at that sense. And her Twitter personality is actually quite reflective of her personal uh, behavior in that sense. And I do think, you know, if you're a Republican senator out there, and it's probably Republican senators who will decide your fate, you're probably going to have to be talking to OMB all the time when you're negotiating things on budget and talking to the White House. And, like, this might be reason enough for you not to want to vote for someone just because they're terrible to work with. I mean, that's actually an asset for people in government. They should be, mm -hmm. they should actually be able to work with people who they disagree with. And I, I saw no, uh, you know, I saw no indication that she can really do that. Can, can we touch on some of the stuff that's happened over the last 10 years? Um, you know, and, and the reason we were highlighting this not is because it's like, oh, great, we get to like, you know, Shadana Nero today. It's that we have to understand like the potentiality of, of her, you know, becoming the director, although I don't really think there's a path there, but what could play out? So, uh, we have a C-SPAN clip of her. I think we should play real quick. And then I want to come back and talk about Matt Brunig, if you want to, and, and maybe some of the others who've had um, interactions with her. Let's play that C-SPAN clip. Candidates uh, with these governors. Uh, and I think that there's other, you know, there are progressive governors like O'Malley and Cuomo who've taken a much more balanced approach on, on budgets where they've looked at taxes as well as reforming programs and, and cutting programs. And so I think that's that's the approach the American people are supporting. There's a viewer here who wants you to take us deeper into entitlements mm -hmm. uh, by Twitter. Ms. Tanda, do you know what the president means when he says entitlements are on the table? Any specifics and anything you would endorse? Yeah, I mean, so there are a range of entitlements um, that, you know, I think when we're talking about entitlements, we're talking about Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. These are programs that um, that uh, people receive support because of the status that they have. So when after 65, you get funding from Social Security and Medicare. Um, actually, it's growing, it's going getting older for Social Security. But uh, and you know the president has 300 billion dollars in his budget in cuts in Medicare. Um, that comes on top of cuts in Medicare from um, the Affordable Care Act. So he has put specific cuts in the budget already in Medicare, um, and they had savings in Medicaid in the past. Um, I think the question really is, if we're gonna have a deal to address long-term deficit reduction, we need to put both entitlements on the table as well as taxes. It's unfair to ask only middle-class Americans to bear the burden of our deficits. Middle-class Americans actually didn't okay. create the deficits. Uh, let's, let's so I think that. the challenge because I think what's so fascinating about that is she didn't lead with the middle class argument and the tax cut, who she doesn't mention in that clip, who the deal, you know, the tax cuts were over. But they were willing to put these social, these, these social safety net programs on the table to get tax cuts again. If for, it was mind boggling. Like, it's not a trade off. That's not how this works. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and I think, again, this is like when we worked for her at CAP. Uh, I thought of her as a lawyer for the administration, right? Mm -hmm. Like she didn't see it as an outside organization that's advising the administration what to do. She saw it as it needed to be in step with the administration. And President Obama did propose uh, what's called a change CPI, which would change how Social Security benefits are calculated in a way that would have reduced benefits. Now, he changed his position later after years of pressure, including from organizations I worked with, uh, to lobby him against us. He did change his position. But Nira Tanda did not see her role as advising them against this. She saw her role as aligning the organization with the Democratic establishment, which is generally the people she works for. I think of her much more, I don't think of her as a budget expert or an economist. She doesn't have that expertise. 
Uh, it's probably the opposite, honestly. I think of her as a political operative, and her client was uh, at that point Obama. And I think, you know, if if you want somebody in the Biden administration who's willing to tell him things he doesn't want to hear, he's going to push back. I don't think that's going to be her role. I think her role is going to be to try to get everybody in line with them. I think people who are on the more progressive side, like Jared Bernstein, who are who would be likely to push back, she would probably uh, not join them. I mean, that's my experience with her. It, I, of course, I cannot predict the future. So if she gets confirmed, who knows? She may do a 180. But everything I know about her up until this point suggests that that's what she would do. So Yeah. Um, you know, I remember on the, the platform committee, uh, her job was, it's actually very interesting. She was there to lead the charge. Um, not only was she, she was on the, the smaller platform, the drafting committee. Uh, and, and if you ever want to watch some interesting takes, go look up the C-SPAN uh, videos from from that where Cornell West and Dr. Zabi and Keith Ellison were on that platform committee. Um, but we, the bigger platform committee, which I was a part of in 2016, you know, she would aggressively go around and go, go like this, vote against, vote against expanding social security, vote against it, vote against it. And some, I remember there were some Clinton delegates just they just supported Clinton. They wanted the first woman president. They were their appointed platform for whatever reason. Um, they were like, I, I don't agree with this. I, and they were feeling pressure and they started to move to our side because it wasn't necessarily just that they were opposed to the actual platform issues that, that the Clinton campaign was pushing, which some of them were, of course. It was the way they were being pushed to do so. And it was, there was no room, there was this like romantic idea of joining the platform committee and having a debate and, you know, representing your side. And instead they were like, you better do this or we'll shame you. One of them was, was threatened to be taken off of the democratic committee locally because she voted yeah. against one issue. And I think it was actually Palestine um, because she was Palestinian. Unreal. So can we talk quickly, um, some of the other folks that have, these are big stories that have happened over the years and it's just sort of a refresher, but there was, what happened with Matt Brunig? Yeah, Brunig, so uh, his wife who writes for the New York Times. Right. Uh, yeah. So Matt Brunig at this point, he was a he's a really smart young guy. He's working for a think tank called Demos, a progressive leaning think tank. Uh, he was in a dispute with Near Online. Uh, I think he used the word scumbag, but he was doing it in reference to like an internet meme, which is not like a literal scumbag, but like uh, whatever. And he referred to her that way. Uh, and then what ended up happening was Demos, of course, values this relationship with Cap, which is a policy broker for the whole Democratic Party, uh, and they ended up firing him. And it was it was actually a pretty tough time for Liz and Matt in that you know they were they looked around for work. He couldn't get a union to to hire him. He eventually what he decided to do was to crowdsource a think tank, which actually ended up being working out very well for him. It's a, it's a great little operation that's, that's well funded through um, people, but it was a, it was a tough period for him because it demonstrated that when you run afoul of a democratic party power broker, they can really ruin you. Like they don't, it's not like having an argument with a friend or something. Maybe you have a heated argument. Okay. Then later you apologize and everyone gets along together. Like these, these people are out to end you if they don't see you as loyal to their faction. Um, unfortunately, this is how these kind of steely eyed, political operators work. And I think, you know, one analogy, maybe Rahm Emanuel, Rahm Emanuel operated very similarly under Obama. You know, he had a very cutthroat mentality and it seems like he may be joining the administration again, or at least there's rumors of that. Um, and I think that's a perpetual problem in Democratic Party politics, which is that to a large extent, it does not welcome debate, right? Like they, they prefer to have somebody at the top just kind of set the tone in the agenda and then you, you're expected to kind of follow along with it. Uh, of course, I think there's a new, newer, younger generation of people, including lawmakers, who don't like that and are trying to push Democrats to more openly debate things. Uh, but unfortunately, Tandon is, is someone who, who believes in the older style. Um, and I think that Obama did too, honestly, despite him publicly acting like he didn't. I think Obama kind of liked like having people in line as well. So Biden, I mean, but I mean, this is an amazing thing. The uniter, and at the end of the day, it's like, who are you uniting? Is is well, that's that's the question. Is like Biden ran his entire campaign about how he wants to unite the country, how he wants to bring people together, so on and so forth. If you bring on someone who's known to just be an attack dog, I mean, just belittle people and crush them for any difference they would have with you mm -hmm. it does not correspond with biden's message you know it is not it is not what his campaign was about and i think a lot of people were shocked when he picked her because we've all been told that biden was not very online he doesn't use social media he doesn't do all that and like everybody knows they're a stand-in for being a very acerbic uh social media user and very caustic and 
it just it just doesn't fit with what he was talking about at all on his campaign. And so I think this is something Republicans are going to turn into a real embarrassment if if they do stand by this nomination. It's going to be a very embarrassing confirmation hearing for for the administration. I don't know why they would want that. The other thing that's really confusing to me about this is I, I just feel like why are they putting their energy? I think that their energy is like completely. It's just about killing the left's movement right now. The left meaning the anti-capitalist, pro-worker, unionizing movement that's just growing globally, obviously, um, which is always their biggest fear. And they're more preoccupied with that than (laughs) the Great Depression 2.0 that they're inheriting. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, how is this your priority right now? And it could go very poorly in the hearings, but it's like that's at the back of the it's in the back of their head. The other thing that I was thinking the other day was, um, it, it didn't. It doesn't seem like a Ron Klain, Joe Biden kind of move. It seems you know that she's 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 more Clintonian. Um, of course, she was in the Obama administration, but she, or she supported Obama. Excuse me, but she. Um, I think what's confusing to me is, it, it's not like their person really. So is this more about like? a potential Kamala Harris administration. I mean, a lot of the appointees, I'm like, these are more Clintonian and Kamala Harris has, has lined up with a lot of, uh, of Clinton's folks. Um, what do you think? Yeah, it's a good question because Harris is definitely hired many more people in Clinton's orbit and kind of the cap orbit. And and Biden's people generally have a few degrees of separation from, from that crowd. And it is genuinely puzzling to me that this happened. It if anything, I thought maybe they would tap Tandon for a role that's less public or that is not Senate confirmable if they really wanted to give her something just because she's, you know, a, a, fun, a functionary of the Democratic Party. Uh, but putting her in a position where she'd have to go through a Senate hearing, which is probably going to be fairly intense, uh, with a lot of Republican senators who she's insulted in very caustic ways that are not particularly productive, uh, it seems just like a, a totally bizarre move. And in, we may end up looking back at this one uh, similar to, you know, the Harriet Myers of, of the Biden administration, right, where you you end up putting someone forward who doesn't have really the credentials for the job and who doesn't really necessarily inspire your people. And the other side just hates them. Like, they just, they're just like, who is this person? Um, because it's just a puzzling move all around. However, there is one theory I've heard. I'd have nothing to substantiate this for. Just someone I know came up with this, but they were suggesting that Every administration usually loses one or two nominees, you know, in their initial go round. And if you have to lose someone, it might as well be Nira because she's not that important of an asset to the administration. Uh, so if they wanted to throw out somebody just for the Republicans to all like gang up on and attack and end up withdrawing or losing the vote, it might as well be Nira Tandon. I mean, that that just I don't know if there's anything to that, but. That would be a somewhat rational strategy, I guess, compared to the alternatives, which is that they just didn't, they weren't thinking very much when they made this nomination. I mean, I think that they're thinking. I just don't know what the, I mean, I don't know what they're prioritizing is the other, is, is the question. Uh, Zedjelani, I'm, I'm, I'm hereby calling to order any more conversation about Nira Tandon because okay. it's like way more than I've wanted to talk about it for the last of course. Me too. few days. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but we have to give a service to folks who don't, who did not enter, who were not part of the wars of 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 the two thousand tens and onward. I don't even know where we are. I guess yeah. the, for me it was two thousand fifteen onward. The uh, the Clintonian wars. Um, but you know we have to do our service. It's like mm-hmm. historians that you know wrote about some some obscure president, and then the president makes news, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I have to come on and talk about this book I wrote forty years ago. That's the same same duty we have here. Zed Jelani, thanks for joining. Uh, To everybody else, thanks for joining today. Make sure to click that subscribe button if you haven't already and join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We will see you. Oh, wait, we have some shout outs. I've been really bad about this. Look at me. Do you have any shout outs, Dorsey? Yep, hold, hold, hold. This is the moment that you've all been waiting for, the shout outs. Uh, (laughs) Anyways, bottom line is that's our Nero talk and you got it. All right, special shout outs. We have, let's work backwards, there we go. Uh, Solar panels in the White House 2021. Thank you so much for the love. Vinny Holiday, extra love, says, shouldn't the left, shouldn't we as leftists be making the case against forced vaccinations and mask wearing punishments? I worry that 
the Joe Rogan types are taking the stance by then using it to re reroute to anti-government hyper-individualism. Yeah, we, we, we sort of touched on that today on the majority report, for those of you who came over. Um, I, I'm concerned that the Republicans, you know, Fox and Friends was, was like, they had this like amazing observation today that masks might work in preventing COVID from spreading. But I feel like their, their incrementalism is so that they can then uh, doubt the vaccination because they need something to fight against in terms of their liberties. Uh, Prairie, Prairie Fire Kowalski. This is Kowalski from Nebraska, uh, but he wrote Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska, setting his love. We need to fat shame Trump more. Nothing against people with a problem because uh, because of time and environmental conditions. But Trump has no excuse. He's just a lazy, greedy, lustful gluten. Love the show. As someone who tries to kick the gluten habit has a little bit of an allergy. I am allergic to Trump as well, who's a gluten. Thanks to Professor Javi K and everyone in the live chat mixing it up. And big thank you to Mini Doctors for tirelessly, tirelessly working the algorithms. And extra, extra thanks to our, our moderators, Bob and Chokin, for single-handedly, double-handedly, two different hands, single-handedly, keeping the chat room troll-free. I'm waiting for the Nero trolls. So I hope you guys can check that in again because they're coming for us. All right, take care everybody and be safe and healthy. See you tomorrow.